Welcome to Nevertheless, She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. This week on Nevertheless, She Persisted. The highs you experience are so much better because your lows were so much lower. You get to experience joy unparalleled to other people. You have power. Don't for one second sit there and say that this is it and this is your life's destiny. And and it just takes the awareness of that that fact that it doesn't have to be this way. I think that depression feels like home. That's a very strong indicator that Mm -hmm. it's time to step into the unknown and see what else you can call home. This week's guest is Scout Sobel the host of Scout Podcast and co-host of OKSIS. She's not only the CEO of Scout's Agency, a PR agency that specializes in podcasts and women's voices, brands, and companies, but a huge mental health advocate and bipolar survivor. Let's get into it. Hey, Scout. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. I wanted to start um, this episode with hearing your mental health story and journey. So starting back from like your teenage years, what's your mental health story? Yeah, so I had my first depressive episode when I was 14. Mm -hmm. It was the first semester of freshman year of high school. And looking back, I can totally see the makings. In eighth grade, I was getting kind of like, you know, emotional Mm -hmm. and deep with my poetry Mm -hmm. and always journaling and being super introspective. So it really was kind of building within me. And then my mother got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. And that was the catalyst to really bring all that emotion to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And so I had my first depressive episode and I really let myself go. It was a really, really hard time for me. It was new landscape. It was also understanding high school and hormones and growing up. So my parents put me into therapy because the school recognized pretty quickly that I was not my usual self, Mm -hmm. that I was showing up in pajamas and not showering. And my usual candor was completely diminished. And so I was put into therapy at the age of 14, mm-hmm. which I totally rebelled against for a few sessions. <laughs> I did the same thing. Um, yeah. We, I had to go to like three different therapists before I was like, fine, I'll talk to you. Yeah. I would literally um, just sit at the floor and just stare at the clock and like run it out, which is horrible. I feel so bad for my parents for wasting all that money, but I was like, not saying anything, not happening. You're not getting anything out of me, but. Well, you're nicer. I was in there and I was like, look, I'm not going to talk to you. So like we can just stare at each other for an hour if you want. I was (laughs) such a bitch. So anyways, I went through high school really experiencing a lot of ups and downs and what I call like this paralyzing fear of not being able to function. Mm -hmm. Like there were nights when I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get my homework done, not because it was difficult, but because something was weighing so heavily on my mind and my heart that I felt as if I couldn't take action. Oh, I I agree. It's like paralyzing. It's like you see everything happening around you and you're like, if I could just move and do this thing, but you can't. And it's, 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 it's crazy. Yeah. It's a very strange feeling Mm -hmm. because you don't understand really what's going on, why it feels like you're walking through quicksand just to write down 10 vocabulary words. Mm -hmm. So when I left high school, I went to college and I started experiencing psychosis and paranoia. Mm -hmm. And that is when, you know, I thought I started talking to my parents that perhaps this wasn't a teenager problem. Perhaps this wasn't like growing pains, Mm -hmm. but that there was something chemically imbalanced in my brain and that the thoughts and experiences I was having, which was deep depression and psychosis Mm -hmm. and paranoia were toxic and unhealthy. Yeah. 
So we started getting more serious with therapists and psychiatrists. I started playing around with not playing around, trying new medication (laughs) Mm -hmm. and kind of just entering into that space. And it wasn't until I turned 20 that I was formally diagnosed with bipolar disorder type Mm 2. And so bipolar disorder type two is when you lean more towards the depressive side versus the mania Mm -hmm. side. So I experience hypomania and more depression than anything. And um, I also have general anxiety disorder as well as I deal with catatonia, which is when my anxiety is so bad that physically become paralyzed and cannot move or speak for up to hours on end. Mm So it's been quite a journey for me. There was definitely a portion in my early 20s when I call it unfunctionable. I I had to drop out of college. I quit jobs. I quit internships. I literally couldn't hold a job. Mm -hmm. I moved back in with my parents. I was not not in good shape. And my family at that point had really recognized that I live with a mental illness and that it is a disease. Mm -hmm. And when I met my husband, who comes from the recovery background, Mm -hmm. he's nine years sober, he kind of gave me the push and the tools to start taking care of myself and to start taking control of my mental health because while I might not have an option on whether or not my brain gets attacked with depression, I do have an option of how I treat it and handle Mm -hmm. it and react to it. So I started working on bringing the power back into my hands. Mm -hmm. And although it's been an extremely tough journey, filled with a lot of depressive episodes throughout my 20s. I'm 28 right now. I feel as if this year I've come to a place where I feel confident in managing my disorder um, and able to thrive in my career as well at the same time and in my relationships. Mm -hmm. I got married and have a beautiful relationship right now, but um, there was definitely a time where my therapist and psychiatrist weren't sure Mm -hmm. if I would be able to function in society. Yeah, that's amazing that you've gotten to that place. And I want to circle back and ask one clarifying question. When you mentioned you started having like psychosis and paranoia from someone who hasn't experienced that before, how can you kind of, how are you able to differentiate from, is it obvious that you're like having an episode of psychosis or you're like, this is not real or is it hard to kind of draw the barrier between the two? Yeah. So my paranoia and psychosis were really linked together in which I felt that there were physical threats around Mm -hmm. me at all times. And what happened was that rationally, I knew Mm -hmm. that it wasn't real, but physically I was in a state of fear. And so, and then mentally my mind would say, I know it's not real, but we're going to plan escapes. Like it was just really intense and it happened so often that I did be start losing touch with reality Mm -hmm. and it it felt as if my rational side and my mental illness side were fighting one another Mm -hmm. because I could say no one's trying to hurt me right now I'm safe at my dad's house but my body felt otherwise yeah and I I think that is something that a lot of people can relate to not necessarily like the psychosis the paranoia but that feeling of you have this emotional need or you have this emotional response that your body is telling you to do, whether it's with anxiety or depression or even like sadness. And then logically you're kind of balancing like, okay, well, what's the best way to go about this? And it can be a really, it can be a really difficult way to work through those two. And I talk about that a lot with like the DBT concept of like emotion mind versus rational mind and then the two being wise mind. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's really amazing that you're able to apply that as well with something like psychosis and paranoia. And it's also amazing. It's so inspirational that dealing with something with like bipolar and dealing with something with, it has psychosis and paranoia and you're still able to like take control of that and, and function and not only function, but thrive. And, and I think that's very inspirational to a lot of teens who are experiencing things not on that level. And it's like, if you can do that, then anyone can. So that's awesome. 
Yeah. And I would say if you're like, I always wish, I mean, you and I had a conversation before this, but I always wish that when I was a teenager, that it was perhaps seriously, I took a 500 question test Mm -hmm. when I was like 16 and I ranked in the chronic to clinical depression zone Mm -hmm. and nothing was really done about it because it was chalked up to teenage hormones. Mm -hmm. And so I really wish that I didn't have to spend you know, from 20 to 25, doing intense deep work, missing out on college, having a completely different experience than my peers, when I think that if it was handled a little bit differently in high school, you know, it's no one's fault. But I, you know, if you're listening to this, and you're a teenager, and you're even interested in this, it's a huge first step. Definitely. I totally agree. So the next question I wanted to ask was when we were prepping, I was binging the whole Scout podcast series. And one thing that really stuck to me was in your first episode, when you talk about your bipolar acting as a compass for you to stay on track with life. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that and how it's um, impacted the way you function and stuff like that? Yeah, so I do morning pages every morning where the first thing I do when I wake up is I journal um, one to two pages in my journal, Mm -hmm. just conscious flow. I let what comes to me comes to me. And um, I had this insane realization. I have developed a really big spiritual practice, which has really helped me through my mental illness. And so I understood, and you can call it your higher power. You can call it the divine source, energy, the universe. I'm just going to call it God for, for, for today. I figured out why God gave me bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And I had been hearing all of these stories on podcasts of people who were 40, 50, 60, woke up and were unhappy with their lives and they didn't know where it went and nothing was intentional in that job. They were just supposed to stay out for a year, mm-hmm. ended up being their whole life. And I had this major, you know, spiritual and higher energy breakthrough was that my bipolar would never let me work a job that I didn't like because I would get depressed. Mm-hmm. And then I physically would not be able to show up because it would yeah. be so intense. It would never let me pursue something that wasn't in align with my highest self. It would never let me stay in a relationship that wasn't serving me or healthy. And so in that sense, at the age of 28, I have taken such control over my life and designed my life. My future is my future. My life is what I make of it. It's the narrative I tell in my brain. It's the things I do every single morning. And that's what bipolar taught me. Mm -hmm. It made me get a hold of my life and ask myself, what do I want? How do I want to feel? what fulfills me, what's going to, you know, when you go through so much pain, you know, that's forced upon you Mm -hmm. for no reason. The last fucking thing you want to do is then go live in society and be in pain again because of society. So I, you know, my husband always says I didn't get sober to be sober. I got sober to live. Mm -hmm. And so once I was getting to a point of, you know, some sort of stability or at least dealing with the depressive episodes Mm -hmm. in a more empowering way, I really took control of my life and, and it's the most beautiful gift mm-hmm. I could have ever received because when I'm on my deathbed, God God willing, it's when I'm very old, yeah. I can look back and know that my life was meaningful and fulfilled because bipolar made me make it that way. Mm-hmm. And that's not what a lot of people can say. Yeah, I I love that. And when I was when I was thinking about that the thought of that being your compass in life and I the way I approach mental illness and depression and anxiety is kind of on a continuum, which is that we all feel these emotions, but with mental illness and with stressors on our mental health, it's just exacerbated. So we all feel this sadness. We all feel these lows. We just feel them at different amounts. And so 
when we're feeling these emotions, we know the function of emotions is to communicate something to ourselves or something to someone else. And so with things like bipolar or severe depression or severe anxiety, these emotional signals are so strong and so easy to pick up on. But when you're functioning well and you're able to kind of ignore those emotions and suppress them, and logically live your life the way you think you want to, it's hard to pay attention to those emotional signals. And so I love what you're able to do, which is honing in on your life and living it to to the best version that you can because those emotional signals are so strong. And I think for everyone else who hasn't, I mean, partially I'm happy for them that they haven't had to go through that severe low of mental health where they're like, I cannot do anything without being forced by my emotions. But it's also something to pay attention to. Your emotions are trying to tell you something for a reason. And maybe it's a little bit illogical. Maybe it's a little bit, it's too much for the situation, especially with anxiety and depression. But it's also, again, it can lead you the way you need to be led. And so it's something we need to pay more attention to and and improve our functioning around. So I, I love that you said that because even if you're not struggling with a mental illness, it's something that we can all practice and improve upon, which is listening to those emotional signals and what they're trying to tell us in our life. So the next question, so I've heard you and Maddie talk a lot about on the podcast and how that helps your relationship grow so much. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your relationship was like before that and how the podcast changed that. Yeah. So Mads and I, we run OKSIS podcast and she is three years younger than Mm -hmm. me. So like when I was a senior in high school, she was a freshman and we had always been like close in the sense that we weren't like, we weren't so different. Um, Our personalities are quite different, but Mm -hmm. our taste levels weren't that different. You know, we liked the same clothing and the same music and the same culture. We were as close as you could be growing up. I think that three years difference when you're younger makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so there were things, you know, we weren't each other's confidant necessarily throughout times, but we did have moments of, you know, really intense emotional connection. But As we got older, our parents got divorced and that really created a wedge between our relationship because she handled it so much differently than I Mm -hmm. did. And that's when we really started fighting and I had a lot of anger towards her and I think she had a lot of anger towards me. And I was going through my bipolar disorder and she was going through her own thing, which I think she felt neglected by just because my bipolar was really taking over. And so there's never been anything like so wrong with our relationship or it's, it's always been good or or fine. Mm -hmm. And it's been through whatever rocky roads. But when I started OKSIS podcast, I, we had this idea to do this together, but I really didn't understand how that would strengthen our relationship. I knew that it, I, I wasn't even cognizant that it would change our relationship. Like I knew that we were working on something together and in that nature, we would talk more, but then mm-hmm. all of a sudden we were talking every day about OKC's podcast and we would go like a week or two without talking sometimes. Yeah. And so this was so different for us. And then on top of that, we were, it wasn't even the nature of starting a podcast with someone is that you talk to them Mm -hmm. all the time about issues, about things, about check-ins, emotional check-ins, what you're going through, what your inspiration is, what your opinions are, how you Mm -hmm. see the world. And so what started unfolding is that we started having these insane conversations with one another and and learning so much about one another. And then also creating this, this brand behind Mm -hmm. who we were together and our relationship on the podcast, like, we didn't go into okay sis saying this is what our relationship is like that's going to be our brand yeah. it really flourished on the podcast and became the okay sis brand and so that has been so transformational for the both of us and you know she's my girl like we've we've gone through so many mm-hmm. situations with okay sis podcast that are just mind-blowing that we never thought that yeah. we would be in a position to you know interview the women we've interviewed and have the community that we have 
And so, yeah, it's just, I, I can't imagine a time when she wasn't my number one girl, you know? Yeah. I, so I, the reason I asked that question was because I did have a feeling it had to do with three things, parallel experiencing, collaboration and vulnerability, which you outlined all those things. And so when I was in treatment and I, I went in and I, although I wouldn't say like you, my relationship was fine with my parents. It was horrendous. I had blamed all my mental health issues on them. I like would become physically uncomfortable, like hugging them or being around them. And I just had so much anger and I was just so sad. And so I, I didn't have an outlet for that. And it often went towards my parents. And so from the year I was in treatment, one of the big things that came clear to me was that to go home and to be back with my family, I had to work on that relationship with my parents. And that was really hard because again, the thought of being with them and around them was so uncomfortable for it for a long time. And so the three big ways that we worked on that was the parallel experiencing, the collaboration and the vulnerability. And that, that for us was like when they came to visit me every weekend in Boston while I was at residential, we would go out and we would have lunch and have breakfast and walk around the city. And we would be having this experience together, which creates a bond. And I think that's something that we forget a lot of the time that even just doing something together, like doing a puzzle, reading a book together, like in a book club, that is a way to build a relationship. And it's so easy because you don't have to engage in that vulnerability. You don't have to talk about what it is you're going through. So it's like a great first step. And then building off of that like baseline relationship, we would go into family therapy and we would unpack every single like negative interaction and argument and belief that it developed between us. And so I explored like how I saw physical items is like validation and love from my parents and so I was able to communicate to that to them and for them that was so they're like how is this possible because we that we always wanted like you to know that you are unconditionally loved and that we always care for you and we're here for you and I and I developed this core belief that I didn't deserve to be loved and would never be loved by them and so we worked through that disconnect and that huge discord through that vulnerability that we built on that baseline parallel experience so yeah I definitely I, I asked that because I did have a feeling that was kind of what built that relationship. And I feel like it's evident in many relationships. We just forget how how easy it can be to begin that first step. So the next question I had was, what was the most pivotal moment, like kind of in a positive way, not like rock bottom, but in your mental health journey? Yeah, probably my most pivotal moment was when I started dating my husband, who was then my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, you know, at that point I had dropped out of college, lost my job, lost my internship. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he said, look, I don't care if you're depressed. If you're depressed and hopeful, I can help and stick around. Mm -hmm. If you're depressed and hopeless, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And it just completely shifted everything for me. One, it was like, if I lose one more thing, I'm not. Yeah. This is not. Everything's gone. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, I can't also lose my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Two, what would life look like if I just had a little bit of hope? Like, mm-hmm. what? Let me just like do the same things I'm doing, but, but have that some mindset. Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that it just went boom in my brain, and I went and I um, looked up support groups. Mm-hmm. I ordered books that were in the self help category, and I started doing everything I could. I, I developed a relationship with a higher power. I did part of the twelve step program. I um, did everything I could. And that's when I really started taking active control in my healing. Yeah. And and I, I see a lot of that in my journey as well, because I talked so much about how 
I was the most hopeless person there was. I didn't think treatment would ever, ever, ever work for me. And so, and that shifted. Like once I was like, I see the wisdom in this and I will put my all into it for myself and not for my parents and not for my clinicians and not for everyone around me because I feel like I have to, but for myself. And I will again, have that hope that this, that this will work. And that was what I go back to as well is that huge shift when I started to work on myself. So I have, an, I have another question for you, which is about being in a relationship when you are struggling with your mental health. That was something that was ve- always very difficult for me. When I was really depressed, I was in multiple, like very toxic and difficult relationships. And the way that I would get validation and support and that emotional connection was often through pretty negative ways. I would be manipulative with my emotions or I would use the fact that I was depressed to get that validation and attention from only that one source. And so how are you able to navigate that when struggling with your mental health and still keep that as a healthy relationship? Yeah, this has been um, a constant ongoing thing that I work on. There was a long period of our relationship where I felt as if I was depressed, he should drop everything and sit next to me and cater to me Mm -hmm. and, and, and be my caretaker. And that is one super unhealthy for me because that doesn't, you know, make me show up for myself. Mm -hmm. And it's super unhealthy for him because that doesn't give him a quality of life or ownership over his own life. And so it took a lot to understand that just because I'm depressed does not mean that I need him to sit at my bedside and do everything for me and, and, and change his whole life and pause his whole life. That what's really healthy is him continuing his daily life and me having other sources of support, um, like a therapist, best friend, dad, you know, like kind of diversifying Mm -hmm. your support system, but also understanding what you can do for yourself in the moment. Like at the end of the day, this is your life and what you need to step forward into. And so I think that if you are in a relationship with a mental and you have a mental illness, I think it's very important to talk about boundaries with your partner. Mm -hmm. Very important to talk about what's okay to lean on and what's not okay. Honoring where they're coming from, honoring that seeing you in pain is one of the hardest things they've ever had to witness as well. So maybe it's like, Hey, can I check in with you? Are you available to be supportive for me today? And have them honestly answer like today, I can't, I'm really sorry. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, today I have the emotional bandwidth. And then where do you go from there if they say no? And so it's like not having that only that one resource, like you said, having family members, friends, therapists, so that it's not all on that one person. I love that. Yeah. Or journaling. Mm-hmm. Like journaling is a huge thing. If I feel like, you know, my husband has a big project tomorrow, and, you know, I love him enough and I love him so much that I would never, now I see, and you know, it took me a while to see, but I would never want to put his career and his life in jeopardy because I'm not feeling mm-hmm. well. So if I'm not feeling well and I, and sometimes, you know, I got to a point where I don't really feel like calling my dad or my friend and talking about it anymore. I'll journal. I get physically on my knees and pray to God. I meditate. Like I I go on a walk. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out the tools that work for you because calling a friend and calling a significant other and a family member while in the beginning, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. I think you do need to come to a space where you can handle certain levels by yourself and then knowing when that level has entered into a dangerous space. And that's when you reach out and understanding the subtleties of that is very complicated. But as you get to know more about yourself, it'll be a life changer. And it'll also develop a relationship with yourself that is so deep and complicated Mm -hmm. and beautiful that it's it's gonna open your eyes to so much more of how you function and work cognitively yeah I I think back to when I 
first was doing DBT, which is the dialectical behavioral therapy. And one of the components is phone coaching. So it's a great resource. They, you have access to your therapist via their cell phone 24 seven. So you are given like all the power in the world for support. And it can be like the, one of the most detrimental things to you learning how to cope yourself. So what I was at home before, I would be on the phone with my therapist, like sobbing over conflicts with my parents every single night. And so I would like leave my house and be sitting on the side of the road and I'd be like, I can't do this anymore. Like I just can't go back to my house. And so I I relied so strongly on that one support system. And so I agree that you have to learn to cope yourself and be able to do that independently. And so, yeah, it's it can be hard to learn how to do that yourself. And it, it kind of feels like unsafe. You're like, well, I don't have this other person. Like, I don't know if I can handle these emotions and this this up and down myself. But yeah, I definitely relate to that as well. So the next question, from your experience, what is like the disclaimer or preface that you want people to know about both bipolar and mental illness in general? Is this towards someone that doesn't deal with a mental illness or is this to someone who does deal with a mental illness? Let's say both. First, what is it like to someone who has never experienced mental illness, has no idea what it's like going through that, and then to someone who has? Yeah. So for the person who's never experienced mental illness, God, it's really hard Mm -hmm. to put into one sentence just understand that what that person is going through is so rooted and deep and heavy and that it is truly paralyzing at times Mm -hmm. and while it sounds made up the abstraction of it all is the hardest part Mm -hmm. because it isn't look at this cut or Mm -hmm. look at this scan on you know the radiologist doctor's office it is so abstract that that makes it more difficult for us to even deal with it because we don't understand what we're fighting against. Mm-hmm. So it's really fighting against an abstract monster that that lives in your brain, but that isn't quantifiable or necessarily physically visible, although some of that is changing. So if you meet someone who is struggling with mental illness, the best thing you can do is to listen and to understand that potential that they are going through an emotional journey that is serious and requires professional medical and medical professional help that 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 they can't do this alone especially in the beginning it's Mm -hmm. It's, it's real. Mm-hmm. It can ruin lives. It can take lives. Mm-hmm. So what I would say to someone who is dealing with a mental illness, I just want to say that, one, I hear you. I see you. I feel you. Mm-hmm. Two, you have options. You have power. Don't for one second sit there and say that this is it and this is your life's destiny and this is the card that God gave you because God wants you to know something else and he's teaching it to you in whatever way possible. And if it sucks for the next God knows how long, but you're committed to going through it, I swear to you there are things on the other side that are so beautiful and fulfilling and you will have a perspective in this life that is beyond the average experience. You will taste fruit that is so sweet that nobody else can taste. Mm -hmm. You will do things that people cannot do. You will express things in ways that people cannot express. 
if you just have the courage and the confidence to walk through the fire. Imagine your best friend is an alcoholic, a complete alcoholic, Mm -hmm. and they're going to go to rehab, but they don't want to go because they don't want to walk through the uncomfortable, terrible detox, the terrible emotional training that needs to come after that. What would you tell them? You would tell them to do it. So I need you to tell yourself the same thing. Walk through the fire, taste the fruit on the other hand, and and then help others. I love that. And like you said, the highs you experience are so much better because your lows were so much lower. There's such a measurable difference between that low that you've experienced in your life, that huge depression, that huge moment of anxiety, and what true joy is. And so while a normal person feels like, okay, this this sad thing happened, I maybe lost my job or I'm grieving about something or I feel this sadness, and then they go back to that joy. You're feeling that on a whole nother level. And so you get to experience joy unparalleled to other people, which, yeah, I I definitely agree. It's your biggest gift if you allow it to be. Mm -hmm. So what's the best support and advice you've received through all this with your mental health? Probably the harsh reality that I have to do it and someone else can't do it for me. So many therapy sessions. I was like, can you just tell me what to do? Like, I will yeah. do it. I will do whatever you want me to do. Just tell me how to do it. And there- where's the pill? Where's <laughs> the map? Where's where's the Bible book for me? Like, what do I have to swear myself? Yeah, into? like I'll do it. I'll do, do it. Gotta- tell me what to do and I will do it. But yeah, there's no map. Work. There is no freaking roadmap. And that, that's something that sucks so much. And no one's been there before. Like, we're all united in this net battle against our mental health and mental illness. But it's so subjective and it's so different. So what mm-hmm. works for me, what works for you won't necessarily work for someone else. And you can apply certain things, but there's still no freaking roadmap, which is what makes it so confusing and abstract and hard to get through. But it's exciting because when you find something that works for you, it like triggers something in you and you get to know yourself a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So like for me, it's expressing gratitude every single day. It's doing my morning pages in the morning. I do that every morning. Mm -hmm. It's going for a 30 minute walk every single morning before I start work. It's doing my skincare routine, Mm -hmm. listening to certain podcasts that uplift me, really tailoring the content that I consume, whether it's on Instagram or podcast or website, email, whatever it may be a lot of meditation. Every single night I do a meditation. I read before bed just to get myself out of my own head. Mm-hmm. I read a fiction. That's what I do too. Yeah. 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 I, I do a lot of tools like on a daily basis that help me stay centered and grounded and strong and connected. And so once you find the things that work for you, it should feel like, you know, in the beginning, it'll be hard to implement, but eventually mm-hmm. you'll crave it. Yeah, I think the most difficult barrier to, get, barrier to get over in a mental illness journey and reaching that recovery is that lack of understanding. At the beginning, you are swimming in an ocean that you've never been in before. You don't understand anything around you. And what you do understand is that low, that depression. And so you want to stay there because at least it's not foreign. But what really does help you achieve that freedom and that joy and that, that happiness that everyone talks about is the understanding. And the why are you feeling depressed? What happened? And and even for me, someone who you mentioned your mom's diagnosis was something that that started that emotional like roller coaster of sorts. Like for me, I don't remember any trauma, any significant thing happening. I didn't have a loss. 
it just, I started getting more and more and more depressed. And so I look back now and I can see that it was compounding core beliefs. It was me telling myself that I didn't deserve to be loved by anyone. It was me telling myself that I would never be good enough for my family. And I, I was seeing all this circumstantial evidence around me that supported that. And so once I understood that those were the core beliefs that I was going through my life and living by, I could correct those. And I could say, so before I would find the circumstantial evidence when my parents are angry that I'll never be good for good enough for them. And now I'll look at this argument and say, they care enough to respond and they care enough to listen to me and tell me what they want for me because they care and love me so much. And so once you understand that belief or that action or that that environment that you're in that is causing that depression, you can change it and you can alter it. And that's what gives you so much power. It's that knowledge of what's going on and that applies to every single thing in life, whether you have a mental illness or not. Yeah, you're amazing. Um, <laughs> obviously, you've learned so much from the DBT program. Mm-hmm. I've been through DBT programs before and but it, it takes it takes takes a certain someone to 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 hear it and to internalize it and to apply it. So, I mean, how old are you? You're 17. You're so beyond far in this world when it comes to emotional development and and personal development and mental health. And so I just think it's amazing that and and proof that you can get better and that you can change the way your mind works and you can alter your perception of reality. Thank you. So the next question is, what advice do you have for teenagers who who are struggling with their mental health? I would definitely talk to your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And if your parents aren't safe people to talk to about it, I would employ the school counselor. I'm sure your school has, you know, resources that they can point you in the right direction. This is, you can go to, this is, this is um, someone we partner with on OKSIS podcast, betterhelp.com slash OKSIS. They are an online therapy platform that can help. Um, They take health insurance as well as financial aid, et cetera. So that's a really great online resource, especially right now during the pandemic, if it's a little bit hard to find someone in your area. So I would definitely reach out and tell someone first. Like that's the first step is saying it out loud, saying, you know, something isn't right Mm -hmm. and I don't want to live like this anymore. And understanding and curating what you listen to, like maybe you need to get into self-help podcasts. Maybe you need to journal. Maybe Mm -hmm. you need to figure out where the root is and just take that first step on that journey. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be a month process. It's not going to be a two month process. It's going to be a lifelong pursuit, but find freedom in that and find inspiration in that. And just, I think, take the first step and tell somebody and surround yourselves with content that supports your mental health. Yeah. And and I think like even the education of what what your life can look like, because when I was struggling with depression it was going on for years and I thought that was normal I was like well everyone can function and get through life and I guess everyone just feels sad all the time and everyone struggles with their sleep and their relationships but like I'm meeting these markers which is going to school and getting up and I I'm at my house like it's it's fine and I didn't I didn't know what happiness felt like the last time I'd felt it was when I was so young that I didn't remember and so it's it's kind of educating yourself that life can be different and then accepting that your life isn't where you want it to be. And that's and that's scary because like you said, all these 60 and 70 year olds are like, my life has passed me by. I don't recognize the life I'm living and I don't know how it got here. And it can be the same thing with mental illness, which is you didn't you didn't know it could be different and you didn't recognize how you got to this extreme low and you don't know how to get out of it. It's it's so, so scary when you realize what a low you're at, even more scary than when you start going down that slippery slope and, and going towards that low because it's gradual. 
but that rock bottom when you're like holy shit like this is this is this is horrible and I and you're just realizing it because you've been turning a blind eye to it for years um because it's been your normal but yeah yeah it doesn't, doesn't have to be your normal that's for exactly. sure exactly and, and it just takes the awareness of that of that fact that it doesn't have to be this way and and right now you're choosing to have it be that way and that's also more power to you because you can choose to stay in that low and and although you can argue that some parts of mental illness are out of your control like the biological components you you're also at times choosing to stay in that state of depression with what your actions are whether it's not getting out of bed whether it's choosing to not go talk to someone or advocate for what you need you're you're maintaining that and so you always have the decision to not change things. It's very scary um, to think about changing that comfort of your life, which is that depression and that anxiety, but it's still possible. Yeah. I think that depression feels like home. That's a very strong indicator that Mm -hmm. it's time to step into the unknown and see what else you can call home. Yeah. And yeah, it's terrifying. It's like, I think that was the hardest part for me was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to change this and I'm going to leave this, this comfort place that I've known for years. And it was so unhealthy. It was so, so, so bad. I, I was manipulating friends and family members and I was using my parents to my advantage when I was at a low, which was that when I was sad, they expressed care. So I was like, okay, they love me. Like that was the only way I received support in my life. And so I had it all figured out. I was like, I knew how to use every single little bit of my life to achieve that validation and care and support while maintaining that really low mood and low mindset. And and the thought of changing every single detail of my life and living a life that I didn't recognize was was scary for sure. So what advice do you have for parents of teenagers who are struggling with their mental health or parents of anyone in general who who does know someone who is struggling with mental health? Because that's a hard dynamic to have to see your kids suffering. Yeah, I would say listen to them and believe them. Mm-hmm. Don't think, you know, treat it seriously, even if maybe, you know, it's better to proceed with caution and it's better to proceed with preventative, you know, intensive measures mm-hmm. than it is to to burden your child with pain any longer. So if you are a parent and you're not really open to the discourse of mental illness, I would definitely try to educate yourself and read about, you know, other people's experiences and what works, et cetera, understanding boundaries and where you're enabling and where you're helping, not being afraid to set that boundary with your child. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you can't do that, you know, just for fear of them getting more depressed. I think that's a really helpful thing to do and obviously provide a loving, 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 supporting, supportive thing. And, you know, financially, if you don't have the resources, figure out resources that you can, mm-hmm. can figure out such as libraries, like go to the library and get a bunch of books mm-hmm. for them to read or research podcasts for them to listen to help them create routine in the morning, figure out, you know, the best morning routine for them and then help them implement it. These are all free things that you can do. You don't need necessarily the money to get better mentally. There are resources out there that are available. So I would just say, be really educated, listen and believe them when your child says something is wrong Mm -hmm. and stand firm in their recovery. Yeah, I think that I think that's crucial. And when I think back to my relationship with my parents when I was when I was struggling with depression, My mom always believed me. She saw that I was in pain and she saw that I was suffering and there wasn't like a question of what is going on. She was like, she's depressed and she knew that. My dad, I've had him on the the podcast a couple of times. And so when I asked him, I was like, did you know that 
adolescents could experience depression or anxiety? And he was like, no. And so this is someone who's, whose dad suffered from bipolar and who, who ended his life because of it. And so this was in his, in his horizons, mental illness and mental health and these lows of depression. And he did not think that kids could experience this. And so like that, that is something that really shocked me because if someone that had mental illness that ingrained in their life didn't know that it could, it could, adolescence could be affected by it. It really speaks to the issue in our society that people just don't know that kids can be affected by mental illness. And so when, when I was in Boston and when I was getting DBT treatment, the way that he understood and saw what is real and could start to believe me and tell himself that I was suffering was with my, my diary cards. And I would, he would say, okay, like on a scale of one to 10, how, how are you feeling with your suicidal ideation today? On a scale of one to 10, how is your depression today? And for me, it was nine, eight to 10 every single day. And he, he's someone who I don't imagine him ever becoming depressed. He's the most enthusiastic, like happy person there is. And so I, he can't, he can't sympathize with that. He can try and empathize, but he hasn't experienced that. And so those markers of, wow, my child is 10 out of 10 depressed today and she 10 out of 10 wants to end her life this is how much she's suffering and this is real and I need to help her and so that education and understanding and believing that that was real what was was what was really helped him and then and then gave the baseline for our relationship to continue because he he believed me and he trusted that I was in pain and he wanted to help with that but yeah that's beautiful yeah I took my dad a little bit of research like he knew that I wasn't doing well but he didn't understand that it was like an illness mm-hmm. that it was something so serious that needed a lot of mental and, and medical attention and so once he did that research and understood and like had that shift like your dad did he became my biggest support and mm-hmm. our relationship has been so beautiful since but it does take people some time to understand as we said before in this episode it's so abstract mm-hmm. so but once they understand the severity of the issue you know hopefully they they come around and and can best support you in the way that you need yeah it's and it's hard it's like I think the abstractness is the most detrimental part of any mental illness or anyone who's struggling with their mental health because it's the biggest barrier for them and the biggest barrier for everyone around them because them not understanding it themselves gives their mental illness more power and it prevents you Mm -hmm. from being able to move forward with your recovery and for everyone else if you can't name it and put a voice to it and explain it to them they have no way of helping you and they have no way of knowing and so that is the hardest thing which is that again there's no one else can tell you what your mental illness is and how it's how it's impacting you and how it how it became the way it is and the way you know it but yeah the the understanding and the abstractness is definitely what I believe to be the biggest barrier to recovery and to supporting others for sure yeah, 100%. 100%. It is so abstract. And so t- conversations like this make it more real, even though, as we said, it's not like a picture. It's not a data graph. Mm-hmm. It's not a blood drawn and you know, right? Mm-hmm. But conversations like this kind of illuminate the human emotion mm-hmm. and experience when it comes to mental illness. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, so we talk about our experience and we both experienced it pretty far on the end of the spectrum that it was very severe. And so then you see these people are okay. Like, I don't feel great half the week and, I, and I'm and i struggling with my sleep. And then do the, they say, 
well, does this mean I don't have mental illness? Does this mean that I'm not struggling? And that's not the case because, again, it's all on a spectrum and it doesn't matter how severe it is. You can always change, you can always recover, and you can always try and improve your mental health. But I think that's another barrier is that people don't think it's bad enough or they don't think it's severe enough to get help and to get support. But yeah. Well, that's what my sister felt because she felt as if therapy and all these tools were for people like me, like for mm-hmm. people with mental illnesses. So she never wanted to get into therapy, even though I told her to do it. Mm-hmm. And those, so then now that she's finally in therapy, she's understanding so much more and healing her childhood traumas and her limiting mm-hmm. beliefs. We all have them. So yeah, just because if you're listening to this and you're not quote unquote diagnosable with a mental yeah. illness, does not mean that mental mm-hmm. health is not for you. Exactly. Mental health is for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think about like going into my therapy sessions now before it was like me sobbing and my parents and I being like, what do we do? We had all these crises this week. And now it's like me showing my therapist like four TikToks I found funny and then talking about like an issue with a guy I had. And so like even just having someone to bounce ideas off of and help write, like she helps me write breakup texts sometimes. And that's so helpful because she's like an expert on interpersonal relationships. But everyone can benefit from having someone to talk to and a resource. And, And it's... It's, it's hard to understand why there would be that barrier of people thinking their problems aren't severe enough because if you have like a low stage of cancer, someone would be said, well, you don't need treatment. Like it's it's not bad enough for chemo. You would say, well, okay, well, let's get rid of the cancer before it gets worse. But with mental health, it's you don't have the diagnosis, you're not medicated, you haven't had this many hospitalizations, so it must not be severe enough to garner mm-hmm. treatment and support from other people. And and it shocks me that that's the, that's the way it is. And I, I think that can really be attributed to the lack of discussions about it and the lack of awareness to what mental illness is really like with, for those who are suffering from it. Yeah, 100. Yeah, you, knew, you hit it on the head. I think also, <laughs> like, I think that if this can inspire anyone just to take a look at, at what their limiting beliefs are, because that's something that I've been doing recently. And real quick, a really, so limiting beliefs, like, never really clicked with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was hard for me to find my limiting beliefs because I wasn't someone that, you know, I believed I deserved love. Mm-hmm. Like I had all that. So I was like, what are my limiting beliefs? And I was reading You Are Badass by Jen Sincero. And she says, if you can't figure out your limiting beliefs, what positive affirmations are you drawn mm-hmm. to? So the positive affirmations that I'm really drawn to is I am safe and I can handle life. Mm-hmm. So the two opposites of that is I am in danger, mm-hmm. physical danger, which is when, which is what my psychosis and paranoia does. Yeah. So that's my limiting belief and that I can't handle life. Mm-hmm. That's So those two are my limiting beliefs. So if you're having problems figuring them out, figure out what positive affirmations feel most energetically right in your body mm-hmm. and then the inverse or whatever the Mm -hmm. opposite is your limiting belief yeah and then and then you go and you look for that circumstantial evidence that supports that affirmation and for you it's I, I can handle life. I have a whole podcast. I manage an agency. I, I function well in my relationships. And so I can handle life. And and I, rather than looking for these other circumstantial evidence, which is when like you couldn't hold an internship or you couldn't hold a job and your relationships were struggling or your family didn't understand. And I, I think that was what I had to do, which was stop looking for the evidence that things were going badly and start looking for what was going well. And that was that was so pivotal for sure gratitude yes definitely i'm really glad we got to sit down and talk about all things mental health and you got to share your story and i got to ask you questions about it so thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for thinking of me and having me the conversation you're having is so important and i i look up to you even though you're like 11 years (laughs) younger than me you're 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 doing incredible things and so i'm super proud of you oh thank you 
If you want to hear more from Scout, find her podcast, OK Sis and Scout, on every listening platform and follow her on Instagram at Sobel. All of her info will be in today's episode notes. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Nevertheless, She Persisted, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends and family. To stay updated on new episodes dropping and bonus content, follow Nevertheless, She Persisted on social media. Instagram at She Persisted Podcast, Twitter at Persist Podcast, Facebook at Nevertheless, She Persisted Podcast with Sadie Sutton, and check out my website, ShePersistedPodcast.com. And don't worry, all of these are linked in today's episode notes. Don't forget to subscribe 